Well, there's two types of happiness, isn't there? There's hedonic happiness, which is having a drink, <laughs> you know, like just having a laugh, being at a party, taking drugs, whatever, you, whatever turns you on. And then there's what's called eudonic happiness, which is actually pursuing purpose, which is more like running a marathon or writing a book. We both know that doesn't feel like happiness, but there is a sense of fulfillment. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Greg Orm. Greg's a speaker and an award-winning author and a facilitator. He's delivered talks to over 400 corporations around the world. He helps leaders and teams to thrive in our environment of accelerating change. He really helps them with thinking about how to drive culture, creative thinking, innovation, and the entrepreneurial spirit. He was named one of HR Magazine's most influential thinkers in 2022. And in 2020, his book, The Human Edge, won Business Book of the Year. And he had a fantastic book in 2014 called Spark. So he leads organizational change development programs with global leaders. Mostly he's working with the XCOM of, of global Fortune 500 businesses and maybe the layer beneath that. So he and I work with very different types of organizations. He was also the founding CEO of London Business School Center for Creative Business. So Greg is an expert on helping large companies stay agile. And we talk through, I guess, the four pillars of his book, The Human Edge. What does it mean to drive psychological safety and drive performance in an organization? And you're looking for leaders who have purpose, who can create purpose in an organization, who can help foster creativity, curiosity, collaboration, and communication. And we talk through why story is so important in organizations and how that's the antithesis of crafting a PowerPoint deck and sending it to the organization and hoping that that drives change. So I had a fantastic conversation with Greg. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, um, my name's Greg Orm. I'm an author, a speaker, and an organizational change veteran. I've got the scars to show it. And I work with leaders and organizations on how they prepare for the future, particularly in the context of technological change, artificial intelligence, digitization. My career sort of set me up for this because a lot of my work is around leadership influence and leadership authenticity and purpose. So I started my career as a journalist with the BBC 
Uh, I then went and did an executive MBA at London Business School and got into entrepreneurship and set up my own management consultancy. For a while, I was the CEO of, of a corporate. So I've, I've kind of had a checkered career that's brought a lot of things together. And for the last 15 or 16 years, I've been doing what I do now, which is to support leaders and teams in terms of high performance and, and impact and communication. And the books I write, hopefully on my best days, have a bit of a synergy between what I'm saying and what I'm writing, and it all comes together. Do you ever get asked questions about your book and you can't remember what you wrote? You know, like somebody's read your book and they seem to know, I don't know, chapter three better than you know yourself. And they're asking you a question and you're scrabbling around trying to remember exactly what that was. Totally. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote The Human Edge. Human Edge came out and start, end of 2019, start of 2020. And of course, I was writing it in 2018 and 17. So as a middle-aged man, I don't have the best memory, basically. <laughs> so I can remember the, the bones of it. I remember the argument of it. And sometimes I can remember the detail. But I'll go one better than that, Dominic. I often just look at my own biography to work out what I've been doing for the last 10 years. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, I guess it's a good problem to have because it means you've thought about a lot of stuff and you've written some of it down. But yeah, I have definitely have that issue. When you're working with leaders, helping them manage change, what's your sweet spot in terms of who are you working with? What size of organization? What type of problem do you love to help them solve? Well, I actually started out with small organizations because uh, when I was, at, I was the CEO of the Center for Creative Business at London Business School back at the start of the century. Gosh, that makes me feel very old saying that. But, and that was really about taking the intellectual property of business schools and giving it to startup, particularly creative businesses. But over the period of my career, I now really almost exclusively work with very large global organizations. And where do I work with them? I, I work with them at board level and just below, mostly. That's 95% of my work. So that's where I find I can have the most leverage because Leaders have a lot of the influence and the power. Those are two different things in an organization. And I, I'm often working with them on two levels. What is the leader that they need to be in order to influence and drive the change around them to, to be successful? And also, what is the culture that they are curating around themselves by what they do and what they don't do? And is that being, how do you get into that awareness of where you are and how do you help them craft what that future needs to look like? Well, there's two different questions there, isn't it? So the first one I think you were saying is how does a person get into reflecting on their own leadership style? Is that what you were asking? Yeah, yeah. So, so obviously the, that's a lifetime attitude, isn't it? That we're trying to help people into. But there are, you know, in this sort of leadership development world, there are various more rapid and artificial ways to do it. So one of my favorite is to take uh, groups of individuals and get them to look backwards at their life because purpose, which has been a hot topic in leadership for kind of many years now, is detective work. It's not creative work. It's actually there in all your past decisions and your passions and your choices for a lot of people to connect to the person they want to be, their best self, the person they can be on Sundays, but they aren't on others, is about looking back about some of the choices they made, some of the failures and the successes in order to kind of excavate it. So I get people to write their life stories for me. I get them to draw it. So I get them to chart it. And from the bones of that, we, we pin together what their, their core values and their purpose are. And then 
from that inside out journey, then we go and say, well, if that's you, how do you want to lead and what impact do you want to have in this organization? That, um, how did you end up with the drawing bit? Where did that come from? Yeah, getting people to draw their life story. I'm just really interested in all the different ways, I guess my brain works and other people's brains work because we know some people are more attracted to images, some people like visual and, and audio stimulus. So when I'm working with people, I try and cover the waterfront to see if I can find something that really draws everybody in. And I also think if you draw something, you're just using a different part of your brain and sadly a part of your brain that's underused in the corporate environment. The reason I ask is because I always get people to draw in an interview. So I get them to draw a picture of what it is that motivates them and inspires them. I guess we're trying to get to something similar there. And I mean, I have had people just walk out and say, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. It's like, okay, well, you wouldn't have fitted in here then. But I then read a piece of research that suggested that if you get people to draw, they are unable to lie. That there's just, there was this, I mean, it's not that they couldn't if they tried, but it's just that it is, so much harder for them because they're already, it's, maybe it's because it's the underdeveloped part of the brain or they don't often do it, but they're just in the research, they'd been able to say, if you ask them a question, get them to draw the answer, as opposed to ask them the question, get them to tell you the answer. They could, they could tell you something that wasn't true, but they're going to like, they're more likely to draw something that is true. And I just, I, I just, I remembered that because I just thought that the, uh, getting people to draw stuff and then just question them about question about yeah. the picture. Well, I don't know the veracity of that or not. I was th- As you were talking, I was thinking about all the propaganda posters that politicians have produced over the years, some of which are true, some of which are not. <laughs> but um, I'm really interested all the time when I'm working with people it, on, on the essence of whatever it is, their leadership, their message. And I think a visual manifestation of something forces you to get to an essence or, or at least uh, tr- try and do it. So that's one of the reasons why I use those kind of techniques. Do you have a form of words that you like to try and capture a purpose in? Or, and are you, are you trying to find, I mean, I know in the book you call it sort of consciousness. Yeah. This purpose. Do you have a form of words you want to try and get people into? Or are you trying to, you're trying to get them to say, why do they behave or what are they trying to get to? What, how do you frame the answer the way you're looking for the answer? The, the short answer is yes, because often when you're working with a group of four directors or group of executives on this kind of issue, you've got maybe one day with them, two days. So you're trying to accelerate them through a process of self-reflection and and self-learning to get to sort of self-management quickly. So as we said, you you can get them to draw things. And at some point during that period, where we when we've looked back, I get them to try and write a purpose statement with the full knowledge that this is a lifetime journey, right? You can't, you can't uh, really cram it into a day or two days, but you can give someone the chance to have a first draft at it. And so what I, I, get, I break it down for them very simply to say, what is my unique set of talents, the things that come easily to me, the, my, my best self? What is the, the type of purpose or the type of audience that I'm, I'm often addressing? And what is the outcome that I would like? Over there on my whiteboard, I've got my own purpose statement, and it's in that format, which is to focus my communication talents, to research, synthesize, and create inspirational ideas of value. That's where I spend a lot of my time. And I said to the widest possible audience. So that's the latest version of my purpose statement. And sometimes I, uh, when I'm having a bad day, <laughs> I think I'm wasting my time. I glance at that and think, am I doing anything today that is doing that? 
is your joy and happiness and are you in flow when that's true? That's a great question, Dominic. I think the answer to that is a qualified yes. I actually think when you're pursuing purpose, it's not necessarily exactly the same as happiness. Well, there's two types of happiness, isn't there? There's hedonic happiness, which is having a drink, <laughs> you know, like just having a laugh, being at a party, taking drugs, whatever, you, whatever turns you on. And then there's what's called eudonic happiness, which is actually pursuing purpose, which is more like running a marathon or writing a book. We both know that doesn't feel like happiness, but there is a sense of fulfillment. It feels more like, you know, blood pouring from your eyes. But <laughs> when you're finished, you feel very proud. So it's that kind of Happiness. It reminds me of the research by the beautifully named Mihahi, Chiksent Mihahi, who came out with the idea. And he came up in the 80s with the idea of, uh, he, he actually put pages on people's belts. You can tell it was the 80s, all sorts of people, and then just paged them randomly during the day and asked them the same question you asked me, are you happy? And he worked out there was a great correlation between happiness and the pursuit of what we feel to be you know, whatever you want to call it, our purpose, what we're good at, our best self. So yes, uh, that's my qualified answer to that question. <laughs> I was listening to Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan's new book, 10X is Easier Than 2X. And they've actually got a story about that where he, he, he wants to interview Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker writes back to him and says, I don't collaborate with other people on their work because that's not my purpose. I just thought that was brilliant. In fact, he liked it so much, he put it in his book because he just thought, if that's what you're about and you have so much self-awareness, then what a great reply. I love that. And I've read similar things from other people who've sent replies to people gathering information. And it comes to, to me, one of the really key points about creativity, about purpose, about success, in the fact that if you look at the most successful people, they know what to say no to. This is why we do these exercises. Because otherwise you're all over the map and success is about choices. It's about saying no to things in order to pour your limited time, sadly, on this planet and energies into what you might be, you might have a slight advantage in. And so I think the ability to say no is a really key skill, certainly in a world where we are constantly being interrupted by what we're wearing, by what we're carrying, uh, by other people. People can get to us wherever we are. It's very difficult to find time to exercise our own human edge, our own ability to, to be creative and curious. I, you see, I'm not sure that other people are interrupting us. I think we're interrupting ourselves because you can turn all that off. I think what it is, is it allows you to say, oh, I can't get any work done or oh, I'm burnt out because I get interrupted all the time or I'm, I can't get into flow. And it's like, you can. You could turn your phone off. You could take your watch off. You could go and sit in a quiet room. And I have a phone. I've had the same phone number 20 odd years. And maybe I'm not popular, but nobody rings me anymore, ever. Right. And, you know, when I talk to companies about, you know, their sales teams and their pursuit, you know, people are saying, oh, no, nobody likes to be called anymore. They don't want to be interrupted, so we won't call them. And then those teams that are actually still making calls are saying, no, we get through to people if we've got their number and they'll talk to us because actually nobody ever rings them anymore. What they do is they send them 1,500 emails. I think people are blaming other people. 
I agree with you. I think there's a certain macho posturing with being busy. And that was that was true before. I think we're starting to realize it's certainly starting to get into the corporate conversation about burnout and about actually the ability to have a balance. I've got a question about burnout. Do you think burnout is where people are pursuing their purpose or where they're doing work that isn't pursuing their purpose? So if I have to go and do something that brings me no joy and is not playing to my unique ability, it's going to be hard. Is, do I get burnt out when I do that? Or do I get burnt out if I spend eight hours in flow? That's a great question. You know, I'll have a go at that. I think that's a superb question. And I think I've got the science right on this because I do talk about this in, my, in the book and about the sessions, in my sessions on purpose itself. What we know about best self and purpose and being creative and curious and being, you know, the person we want to be is it releases a, a neurotransmitter in our brain called dopamine. And so dopamine is the sort of motivation molecule. It's associated with drive, with pleasure, and the thought we might have pleasure in the future. This is why it's associated with some dark things like cocaine addiction and all, all sorts of different things. But when you can harness it and connect it with your work, it actually gives you energy. So I think it's highly unlikely, unless you push yourself to a crazy degree, that you're going to burn out by pursuing things that you find interesting. I love reading and writing. If you know, I, I've effectively tried to craft a, write, a life where that's I get paid to do that. Difficult for me to get burned out on that, although I can still only write four hours a day because it's very, very hard. I think burnout comes more from feelings that evoke other neurotransmitters such as neuroadrenaline and cortisol. These are the things that cause mind and body issues, and they are very serious and they can lead to everything up to and including death. So it's a very, very important thing. But I think they're two different states. Pursuing this way is dopamine, this way is cortisol, which is the fight or flight hormones and, and adrenaline. Yeah, a fear and anxiety. And what happens to so many middle managers that we know is they have all the responsibility and very little power to actually do anything about it. That is a nasty combination. Uh, a boss that dictates their time, lack of freedom in their own personal frame. We all know that humans want competence and they want autonomy and they want relatedness to their job. If they don't get those three factors in their job, that leads to burnout. And that leads, you know, another word for it is just being unhappy. Yeah, miserable. I was talking to the chief scientist at Gallup uh, yesterday, and, and he was we were talking about the disengaged at work. And I said, what proportion of those disengaged are just congenitally miserable? And it doesn't matter what they do, they'll still be miserable. Because that is sort of a perennial challenge. Or And he said about 30% of those disengaged, there's nothing you can do. They should just be on somebody else's payroll. But the other two-thirds, if they had better management could be at least not actively disengaged, at least at least engaged. Isn't that a depressing statistic? Because I kind of buy that. I think that's true. And it aligns with all the polls that Gallup have been putting out for 25 years. What a waste of human potential that the average corporate presides over. And that's partially my purpose, which is how can the leaders do something about that? Because that is genuinely a problem that they can solve, certainly in what I call their microclimate, the the part of the business that, in which they have some leverage over. So how do they how do they do that? I mean, obviously they can pick up the human edge and read your fabulous book and get some ideas. But when you're doing work with them, where do you start? Well, we already sort of had a quick chat about it, which is you start with yourself. As a leader, you, you have to start with yourself. We're talking about this in the context of, of a hundred year shift, haven't we, in, in the role of organizations. They, they were places that were 
effectively delivering what became known as human resources in the Frederick Winslow Taylor Fordism era, which was very effective at, at, uh, at knocking out products. We're now into a whole different area where enlightened organizations realize they need to be creative and innovative. So it's in their interest too. And that is aligned with what we're talking about, which is human happiness and potential in the workplace. So they have to realize that one of their major jobs as a leader is to curate the environment in which their team and employees are working in, to make that something that people are intrinsically motivated to want to do. So to make work interesting and challenging and passionate and engaging. So that's where we start, which is what's within their power within that large question, which is how can they curate an environment and then behave in an aligned way? Because I often say to leaders, if you know, we talk about these four C's, if you want to be conscious, purposeful, curious, or if you want people up who are purposeful, curious, creative, and collaborative, well, you've got to be that way yourself. I mean, if I said, if you came and worked for me, Dominic, and I said, right, okay, it's your first day, Dominic. Today, I want you to be curious and creative and quite passionate, by the way. And I'm going to be watching you. And I'm going to give you a bonus if you're that way. And if you don't, I'm going to fire you. It just doesn't work. Those things actually come for free. We're in a gift economy when it comes to leadership and well, culture. Well, when you describe that, those four things, and you said, Maybe purpose, not so much. But yeah, if I've picked your company to come and work for, maybe I have decided if it's number one on the list that, that I align most with the purpose of this organization. So maybe that's true as well. But I'm curious. Obviously, it's day one. How's this going to play out? I'm open to collaboration. And yet, and the organization hasn't yet kicked all of this out of me. And so, you know, a new employee turns up already sort of predisposed to behave in this way. And then somehow management and the company collaborate to suck the joy out of it for them. And some of them stay and some of them leave. Yeah. And, and this is often the the pushback and the really interesting part of the debate I have with leaders. Certainly if they're, they're not the leaders I'm dealing with who are actually at XCOM at board level, but that often the investment goes in the layer below the ones yeah. who are reporting. So they say things like, well, there's only so much in my power. We have this system here. And so you can't leave them disempowered. So all they can do is change the part of the SIF they're in and hope that they can create an environment. We did an exercise with a client recently where we had 91 people in the room. I mean, it was that group and probably some of the management level below. And the exercise we were trying to do was we were trying to find the edge of that system. And in the room, nobody came up with something that was stopping them doing better work that wasn't actually a construct in their head. Not once did anyone come up with something that was real. So they had an imagined box in which they were working. And actually, the size of the box they worked in was much bigger than the one that they perceived themselves to be in. And I just wonder, where, just, do you get, you know, the, there's a, all people have this thing, oh, you're not allowed to do that here. And then somebody goes, what do you mean you're not? I, I have done that. And there's an example in the business of where it's been done. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, not always. I, I, you know, the majority of the leaders I, I work with are super smart people, doing their best. But occasionally you'll get someone who's really senior in a, in a very large organization who'll say, say things like that. And you also get people saying quite passive statements like we should. So the we takes away any kind of ownership and the should is, well, why aren't you? So, so um, without being unsympathetic and, un, and non-understanding about the situation, the context people find themselves in, I think leadership at that, that middle to upper level is about saying, well, what is possible here? How can I push the boundaries? How, and that's why we, we start with purpose, because 
why would you ever take a risk? And it is a risk to push against a system unless you really, truly believed in it. It was something that you wanted chipped on your gravestone. And so it's really about finding the things that people are prepared to take a risk for in order to challenge systems. Systems have kind of lethargy in them. They're very difficult to move. So you have to get a group of people that feel very strongly to actually change it. And McKinsey did some research recently looking at drug development teams. And they found that 85% of the average thought they were above average. And the top 1% were 10 times better than average. And the top sort of 2, 3, 4, 5% were five times better than average. These companies that you're working in, are they, are they in the top 5% or do you find, are you, do, do you get hired by enlightened management in the top 5% or are you getting hired sort of in the top 25% who want to be in the top five, or you've been hired by people in the bottom 20% who have no idea what they're doing and they're desperate? I've been trying to work out what companies find my kind of message attractive, as you tend to do. Really. <laughs> I think it's not so much about competence. I think uh, I work across the piece. I mean, I was, you know, I work with mining and uh, heavy industry. I've worked with a lot with tech and, and obviously IP-based industries because they are really feeling it in terms of the need to innovate and be creative. Uh, just when you talked about the quality of the leadership teams that you're working with, and I was just wondering whether you're, I don't know, if we put a bell curve of leaders together or just stack rank them or something, where you, know, where you find yourself doing work, or maybe it's everywhere and actually you can be more effective in some places than others. I think the real sweet spot, where the message of the, the human edge and the work that I've, I've built on, on that platform really hits is where companies who really need to be creative and innovative, but have a mindset which is extremely uh, what we used to call left brain, <laughs> sort of logical and rational. So I find myself in front of groups of engineers more than any other group of people. It, it, so I'm often talking to engineers about the human edge and about their ability to influence and trying to... Uh, and because I think they realize, or certainly the people have hired me realize, that's where the most benefit is for people who are already, you know, a lot of these people have got two or three degrees. They're very, very smart. They're global experts in what they do. But where they're not so strong is understanding the human technology that they're trying to, to mold and influence. So I, I think that's my sweet spot if there is one. Okay, fab. And so when you're thinking about helping an organization to change, what sort of pitfalls do you point out to people that they're going to have to overcome? I, I'm, try, I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think of your helping an organization plan for some technological change. You might be able to help them understand what the challenges might be, but then as they go to execute against those challenges, there will be some pitfalls around influencing their organization to come on the journey with them. I think the first pitfall a lot of people fall into is thinking that it's it's just a simple exercise of communication. So one of my real bugbears is the word cascade, which is used a lot, certainly has been over the last 10 or 15 years, which is, well, and what does that mean? It means we as an XCOM went away and thought about the future and came up with a strategy and uh, a series of instructions. And we have put it into a, a PowerPoint deck, which has been PDF'd. And we're going to 
send it around the organization and we will cascade it. So really built into that, into that word, there's a lot packed into that word. It's that we are at the top because water cascades downwards. And uh, once they hear the good news, uh, the incredible <laughs> insight that we've had on, on Mount Olympus, that everyone will then just fall into line. It's uh, underrating the challenge and it's misunderstanding the challenge. I love the way you said we turn it into a PDF. So as it goes down the organization, nobody can change anything. Because we know that they would if we did, if we allowed it. They might have a thought of their own that they might even amend. It's like we've chiseled it into stone. It's now in PDF and it's being disseminated. Yeah, it's the equivalent to Moses tablets, but in in a, a PDF. So don't yeah. mess with it. So that's the first point. And, and then it's the what, how do we influence people? And I think you can't just do it through logical argument as it has been coming through in my approach. A logical argument is a, is vastly overrated as an influence tool. You have to try and find stories that really move people's hearts and minds. So you need to find the essence of the story. Uh, and I, and I think that the third point is when, you, and now we're really into the how, uh, you know, how do we do this at scale? And some of the organizations I'm working with have over 100,000 people. So they're very, very large. I think they need to start, once they've got their essential purpose, their mission, their story, the essence of it, they've worked out how to extract the emotional engagement from that message. They also need to work out all the tools at their disposal. And it's just not just communication. They need to be working. How do I find the, the will and the skill of each individual and try and extract that? So the will being their motivation to do it and their skill being their ability. But also, how are we using social influence? That's incredibly powerful. We are social beings. And then also at the structure of the organization, how are we motivating people with, with money and, uh, and other bonuses? And how do you get, how do you use, use that to find the right people to come in the organization? So it's on kind of three levels, individual, social, and structural. And each level, you've got both the individual motivation and their ability to do it. And you need to pick from that the, the vital behaviors, the crucial behaviors that will make the biggest difference in those areas. I, I love the idea of just uh, this uh, table group. Patrick Lencioni's got a tool called Working Genius. And one of those working geniuses in a team format is Galvanize. And we have had clients where the executive team lacks anybody on the team with galvanized, which is to get the organization excited about the, the change. And, and in those teams, they say things like, well, we sent an email out and we were very disappointed that nothing happened. And you just sit there and you just go, and, and that was it. And they go, why? What else would we need to do? And it's just, there is a complete, you know, it's, it, there's just, it's like, you know, what you don't know, you don't know. And, they just have no awareness that, that that's not going to work. We're excited about it. We pass it down three levels. Three levels down, are those people as excited about this? Do they understand the purpose? And I think your idea there about stories is because you can, you can retell a story. And really, if you retell it right, it's your, the individual is generating the emotional response themselves, right? You don't, I can tell you a story and it can generate an emotional response in you, even if I'm not a great storyteller, because the story is being crafted in the right way that you can, you can resonate with it. Have you got some great examples of clients who've, of some stories? 
Well, I, I think stories really fascinates me. And, it, and again, it's become a real buzz. Leadership storytelling has become a big thing probably in the last 10 years, hasn't it? Even it is in our world, right, Dominic? But then you go into <laughs> corporates and you sort of say this and then and it's still like, well, what, what, what are you talking about? So I still think there's a long way to go. But what I love about stories is this idea of, we were saying at the end, that you get to the essence. You get to the real essence of things with stories. So I think a great example, it's not from my client work, is in 2001, Steve Jobs launched the iPod, if you remember, like a long time ago. And it was a big deal at the time. Technologically, it was far more advanced than other. It was almost a category on its own because it was a solid state piece of technology that had five megabytes of storage, which was a lot. But if you remember, Dominic, he didn't come on stage and go, we've got five megabytes of storage in this device. Do, Do you remember what he did? It was really, to me, it's a fantastic example of storytelling. So he took it out of his pocket and held it up on one of those things with his little black uh, polo neck thing he used to wear. Barrows and songs in your pocket. And in that little sentence, and I'm no doubt he worked with that, I think it's Chai at Day used as an advertising agency. So it wasn't just him, but he's a brilliant, a brilliant example of storytelling because it's not looking at what they invented, inward looking, it's empathizing with the user And it's telling a story about personal liberty, personal choice, excitement, enjoyment, and passion in one line. Now, that is skill. And that's the sort of essence creation that I try and work with leaders on when I'm doing uh, sessions around leadership storytelling and influence. How can you take your PDF, maybe un-PDF it, (laughs) and take it out and try and find the parts in it that are emotionally appealing means something to you as well as the uh, as the p- people listening and get that into a story. So I think that's a really nice example of the Steve Jobs one. I, I've, got, I've got an example from one of the clients I've done some work with, Macquarie Telecom Group, who challenge a telco in Australia. So they, they, they take on Telstra and Optus all day long. And they have a story writer in their business. So every week, Team leads, managers send in the best story of the week, catching their teams doing the right thing. And they then put, pluck out each week, month, quarter, the best stories. And he writes a version of it to send around so that they're constantly adding to the, the lexicon. But the one they tell at onboarding is about a lady on their help desk, mobile phone help desk. She gets a call from a gentleman who says his wife's on the way to the airport pre-COVID. And he knows that she won't have turned on global roaming and he knows that you can't enable it once you've left the country and can they help? And so the lady on the desk says, okay, who is she? Where is she flying from? Blah, blah, Gets some contact details, right? Gets a phone out the drawer, puts a SIM card in it, gets in a taxi, goes to the airport, pages his wife, finds her, gives her the phone. And it's like fantastic. You know, didn't have to get management approval. And then turns out this customer was not a customer of their mobile phone service. But he hoped that they could help because he knew his mobile phone supplier wouldn't help or wouldn't be able to help. And so they tell that story and it just, it's, you know, that's why they've got a net promoter score in the eighties, right? And so it's like, do what you think is the right thing to do. And, you know, nobody got fired. She got celebrated. And, and it's just, um, those types of things I think are, you know, when people are thinking about values and culture, those stories are then so much easier to remember than, the things that they've written on the wall or the things that are in the PowerPoint deck and can be easily retold. Even if, even if you start to lose the detail, it's easy to keep the essence. Yeah. Well, we know 
a story like that stays in the memory structure longer. If someone tells that story with skill, it actually makes a chemical called oxytocin gets released in the brain, which is the trust chemical. It's the same one that actually is released in pregnant women so they can bond with their baby. So it gets released when you hug someone or you're sitting around a campfire bonding. And so it's that kind of feel. It's why babies smell the way they do. There's a chemical protein that babies give off which makes mothers protective and makes fathers more docile. If you, that sort of newborn baby smell, I was listening to a piece of research a couple of days ago about that, which I just thought was fascinating. Pheromone research. What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I've, I've, I've had a go at a few of those during our conversation, but I was taught, I actually was just on a phone call just before we started uh, advising a friend who wants to write a book, actually, and, and go into consulting. You said no, don't. I said don't, don't, no. <laughs> no. Uh, it's the same thing I was saying to to him was, I wish I'd known in my late teens, 20s and 30s that success involved falling over a lot because I would have, I would have really, because, you know, the big passion and one of the, to, to, the two things I'm proud of amongst other things are the two books I've written. And I, I, I paused on those projects for far, far, far too long because the problem with success after it's happened, and that would be like a book I've read, I've read a lot of books, is it looks really beautiful and shiny and pristine and perfect. And when you start your own project, it just looks gnarly and ugly and imperfect. And I wish I'd known that's the way it goes. Everything is like that at the start, whether it's a book or anything else, you are going to fall over a lot. But it's actually in those moments where your face hits the floor that you're learning to be better. I love the phrase by Ed Catmull, who was the chief executive of Pixar, and he calls it ugly babies. So when those brilliant movies, you know, The Incredibles and Toy Story and everything came in front of their committee. They had a committee called the Brains Trust. He says that they were all ugly babies. You know, they never, none of them started as the beautiful, incredible products they ended up being. They had to go through their own journey of falling over and and pursuing the wrong thing. So I wish I'd known that. I would have written books far earlier. I'd have written a lot more books by now because I wouldn't have been so hard on myself uh, at the start of the process. I love that about Pixar, the way they did that constructive criticism and they institutionalized it. So often, nobody wants to lean in and give any constructive criticism. And sometimes there's a culture of deliberately not doing that so that nobody steps on your toes. But when you can harness it, the outcome is way better. And that's the cool thing about that brain's trust idea that it sounds so simple. Let's just pull an interdisciplinary group of people together and we'll give feedback on the latest products. It sounds so simple, but to actually support that, you need the culture where it's not political. People actually really value the idea over their own position and people are not afraid to speak up and, and be spoken to. And that those bits are the hard bits, not setting oh. up the committee. Oh yeah, because you can see in so many organizations, probably you've worked in, definitely that I've worked with, where that, Everyone would go, yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> it's, that's brilliant. And we'd ship it, it'd be bombing the marketplace because actually it was pretty crap. Oh man. Right. Greg, what other than other than the spark and the human edge available from all good booksellers, what else should people pick up and read, skim through, digest? So I, I think writers are readers. So I end up reading lots and lots and lots. And and this list would be different for every time, but Actually, it's changed because 
I think we talked a little bit about focus uh, a while back. And I was thinking, well, as we were talking about that, there's a book I wrote, uh, read rather, that really influenced me, which was Deep Work by Cal Newport. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that ended up being a real support to the chapter I wrote on focus, which is in in the human edge. So I really love that book and the ideas in it uh, that you, you you were talking about. There's a book I read recently uh, called Humankind by Rutger Bregman, who's a Dutch historian, which I love because it provides a counterpoint to a lot of those psychological experiments that we all quote. Uh, And it's a hopeful book that humans are better than you might think they are if you read the newspapers. Uh, And that was an inspirational book to me. I'd also say Fearless by Amy Edmondson, which is the Bible of psychological safety. I'll be honest, I hope Amy's not listening. I don't think it's the most entertaining book I've ever read. (laughs) Sorry, Amy. She's she's sold a lot more copies than I ever have. So that was just some constructive criticism from the heart. You You wanted to be better and more influential. Look, I think the essential ideas in that book, and she was the sort of godmother of psychological safety, although the research goes a lot further back than that. Really, I would say to leaders, if you do not understand the link between psychological safety and performance, you're really not in the zeitgeist of leadership where it should be. So I would I would say anyone should read that book because I think it's a good starter for that whole debate about why do we have psychological safety? Why is it important? Okay, Greg, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you for coming on and giving me your time today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.